last week that we talked about how, or two weeks ago, how the tendency is in our culture today, in our Christian culture, is to add all of these things that Jesus never intended for us, that we begin to define as Christianity, or what it means to be a disciple of Christ, that actually works against us drawing close to Christ with a clear heart and with, with intimacy, but instead we settle for just a list of rules or, or the appearance of being a Christian. You can go back and listen to that uh, teaching if you'd like to get more on that. But that's where we left off a couple of weeks ago. This morning what I want to talk to you about is what the actual discipleship process was. Not just for the sake of some head knowledge. I think you'll be encouraged by what, what the Lord has for us this morning. But I want to talk about the discipleship process in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, there was an historian, there was many historians, but one of the most prominent, his name was Josephus. And Josephus wrote this in his documentation. He said, above all, we pride ourselves on the education of our children. The education of children in the Jewish culture, and still the same today, it was, it was pivotal to the survival of the Jewish community. The Jewish people understood that if we do not get the word of God, the teaching of God and who he is, and a relationship with him deep down into the bones of the children, that we are only one generation away from being extinct as the people of God. And so children started studying the word of God at the age of six. At the age of six, boys and girls would go to school, but the boys especially would just dream about one day themselves becoming a teacher or becoming a rabbi. It was the dream of every Jewish mother for her son to be a rabbi. Just like if you were Irish Catholic, what's your dream? One of my boys is going to be a priest. We have a priest in the family. Okay, if you're Pentecostal, maybe it's having a pastor in the family. I don't know. But uh, in different cultures, there's just that, there's that understanding, and certainly back in that day, it was a very prominent position. Well, in the Jewish Talmud, which is basically a collection of doctrines and laws, it is written, under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil, but from six upwards, accept him and stuff him like an ox. That was basically the mindset in the Jewish culture. Stuff that child with the word of God from the age of six on. And so for the Jews living in Jesus' day, there were essentially three levels of education that they went through, much like we have today. We have elementary school, middle, high school, example, university, undergrad, postgrad, all that kind of stuff work. Well, the same way in the Jewish culture was essentially divided into three different levels. And the first level was called Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer simply means house of the book. And this was basically their elementary school where boys and girls ages 6 to 12, they would learn to read, they would learn to write, and how they would do that would be in the context of studying the Torah. Now the Torah, as most of us realize, is to us the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and of course Deuteronomy. And on the first day, are you ready with your honey? On the first day of their formal education, the kids would come into the classroom and the rabbi would have a slate. In those days, they wrote on slates, of course, and some say that the rabbi would actually smear the slate with honey, but at the very least, he would put a drop or a dollop, dollop, sorry, there you go, see, I don't play Scrabble, but he would put a drop of honey on the slate. And he would tell the children to either clean the slate off with their hand or take that drop of honey and to lick it. Mmm. This is a good time unless you eat already. Takes a little longer than I thought. I should have washed my hands this morning. That's what you're thinking, right? Yeah, some of you are too spiritual to take the drop. And go, oh, that touched somebody else. I'll just pass it on. This is too immature. Well, you just missed a wonderful object lesson because as the children would lick the honey off their fingers, the rabbi would quote Psalm 19, which says that the words of God are sweeter than honey, than honey in the honeycomb. And what the children were learning from the very beginning, and up to this point, they had been taught by their father in the home, but what they are learning at this point is there is nothing sweeter. You see, back in those days, they didn't have candies galore and cans of Coke and all that kind of stuff. So honey was, was a symbol of the favor of God. It was a symbol of something that was highly desired. And so not only would the children realize that the word of God is precious, but every time they ate honey, they would be reminded of the need of God's word in their life. Now imagine the impact that would have on a child at that age. 
Well, in our Bible study, for those who are reading along in our Bible plan, you may recall that in 1 Samuel chapter 14 this past week, we also read the incident of how Jonathan had spent an entire day, he and his armor bearer won a great battle against the Philistines, and they had been exhausted from just fighting all day. And the scripture says that at the end of the day that Jonathan found some honey and he dipped his staff into the honey, brought it to his mouth, and the scripture says that his eyes became bright. And that's how children were introduced to the Word of God. It is the one thing that is more enjoyable than anything else in the world that you would know of, if you allow the Word of God to get deep into your heart and soul. Now, at Beth Sefer, as I mentioned, the textbook was the Torah. And the goal was not only to read the Torah, the goal was to memorize the Torah. Imagine that, children ages 6 to 12, memorizing five books, 187 chapters over that period of six years. By the time they were done, they had it completely memorized. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are thinking, well, that was real nice for kids back in that day. But kids today just can't do that. I don't believe that for a moment. You just turn on the radio and just listen to how many songs your kids can just sing one after another. Or the lyrics of whatever the you know, favorite group is today or whatever the, you know, whatever the case may be. We can retain. What's different in our culture today is we have simply chosen to memorize different things to study different things. We still have the same capacity. We just stress different things. Well, by the age of 12, children at Beth Sefer, they had memorized the entire Torah. At the age of 13, around the end of Beth Sefer, a little bit later for some, depending on when they turned 13, a Jewish boy would participate in a coming-of-age ceremony, which would bring him to that place of being a young man. Most of us are familiar with the term bar mitzvah, Bar mitzvah simply means, bar means son. It means son of commandment or son of law, son of the word of God. It was basically his rite of passage into manhood. We also became a full participant in the synagogue. That was at the age of 13. For girls, it was a little bit different. They had their bat mitzvah, B-A-T instead of B-A-R, bat mitzvah. And for the girls, that took place around the age of 12. And the reason being is because girls, they believed, matured faster than boys. Isn't that crazy? And that's actually why girls, you know, don't feel you're being condemned, but that's why girls, when you look at teenage boys, and you go, you're so immature. That's why, okay, because you are more mature. You get more mature. As we get older, okay, the men become wiser. But at that age, at that age, it's definitely the girls. We all know that. So it was at that age as well, about 12, 13 years, when the boys would begin to learn the trade. They would learn some trade in town. They would, if their family had a business, they'd begin to apply themselves to that while still continuing on for those who did. For most of the girls, or basically all the girls, would stop at that age because at the age of 12, 13, they would apply themselves more to, to the skills of preparing for motherhood, preparing for, for homemaking, those kind of things, because in that culture at that time, uh, girls were typically engaged or married 12, 13 years of age, kind of like we see in the life of Mary, uh, as we'll see in a few moments as well. But when it came to the education after Beth Sefer, the next level of education could only be entered into if you were the best of the best in that first level. And we're speaking now of boys who would go on in their education. If you were allowed to go on in the education because you were kind of the elite of your elementary school, you would move into what was called Bet Midrash. Midrash means exegesis. And so at Bet Sefer, you would study and memorize the Torah, but in the next level at Bet Midrash, you would actually begin to exegete you would begin to interpret the actual Torah itself. You would be going much, much deeper. You would also begin to study the Hebrew prophets and the sacred writings. You would also learn what we would call a cross-questioning skill, the art of, of, inqu of inquisition, of, of asking and responding and really going deeper in that text. Now, in our Western education system, it's a bit different. We have wonderful teachers, and the teachers do the best they can uh, in, in trying to get kids to remember things. But basically, the way our education system is worked, or because for a lot of our children, uh, 
you know, teachers don't have the cooperation of a lot of parents at home to really get things to sink in. And so typically what happens in our education system is we study, we have our exam, we regurgitate everything, and then we go on to the next level and we tend to forget a lot. Isn't that true? Not blaming our educators, they do a wonderful job, but the way our educational system is, the way we view education in our culture, it kind of tends to go that way sometimes, unless you have the more gifted kids who really lay hold of things, or the real weird ones who actually enjoy studying. And I'm only kidding. Uh, but basically, in our, in our system, in our culture, we view education in a little bit different way. Well, rabbinical education was much more thorough, and it was actually a back-and-forth kind of learning. And so if the rabbi was to ask you a question, you didn't just give the answer because he wasn't interested in knowing if you could just spit back the answer. He wanted to know if you knew all the information around that answer. So, for example, he might say, you know, we're talking mathematics. If he said, what is 2 plus 2, you wouldn't say 4. You would say the answer is 16 minus 12. You kind of give back a question. It reminds me a little bit of a Bible game we used to play. And it goes something like this. If, if it's my turn, if I'm it, and there's five or six of us in, in the circle there, I'm thinking of a name. It could be the name of a person or a place or an object in the Bible and now. But let's say, for example, I think of a name of a person. I would say, okay, I'm thinking of a person, and their name starts with the letter T. Now, let's say, for example, I'm thinking of the name Thaddeus, one of the disciples. A person could not just ask, hmm, is it Timothy? Because I said the letter T. They would ask, because they're not only trying to answer my question, they're trying to stump me so that it's their turn. So here's how it would go. I'm thinking Thaddeus, okay? My name, the person I'm thinking of starts with the letter T. So they would say, are you thinking of the person who was the companion of the Apostle Paul? Who is? Right. So I have to say, no, it's not Timothy. Do you see where I'm going? Okay, so they say, is it Paul's companion? They don't say, is it Timothy? Is it Paul's companion? Because in asking their question, I have to know the Bible as well. Because I can't just say, no, it's not Timothy. I've got to say, I've got I to understand their thinking of Timothy and say, no, it's not Timothy. If somebody else says, for example, well, was it the king of Assyria during King David's reign? And I'd have to think back and think, no, it wasn't Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian king. You see, if I didn't know that answer, if I didn't know the answer, then what happens? They trip me up, and it becomes their turn. And so in rabbinical education, it was kind of that way. It wasn't enough just to know the name or the answer. I had to know the whole thing so that I could actually, you know, that's how, it was, how you were tested. So again, this rabbinical way of education, this back and forth, they wanted to make sure that you didn't just have a head knowledge. They wanted, to they wanted to make sure that the Word of God was deep in your life, that you had a grasp of God's Word all around, every possible angle, that it was actually part of your very fiber. By the way, do you remember the time when Mary and Joseph had brought Jesus to Jerusalem for the Passover, and then they left and forgot that Jesus wasn't with them? Remember that? It used to happen to me all the time. My parents moved 27 times while I grew up, and I found them every time. <laughs> but what had happened was, you might think, well, how in the world do you lose your kid and not discover it for a day? Well, as you can appreciate, they traveled as families and neighbors on that pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. So when they left, Jesus is 12 years old. He's almost a young man. They just assume that he's with the relatives. That's what the Bible says. You know, they're off in a tent or riding on somebody else's donkey, whatever the case may be. Family took care of each other. The village raised the kids. And so they were a day's journey away from Jerusalem, and the Bible says, Mary and Joseph basically say, you see Jesus? No, you see Jesus? Anybody? They realize, we forgot Jesus. That's a sermon in itself. We forgot Jesus, so they travel all the way back to Jerusalem. By the time they find Jesus, he's been missing three days. And where do they find Jesus? They find him at the temple. And what does Jesus say? Where else would I be? But when they found him, the scripture says this. What was he doing? He was sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Do you see what Jesus was doing? He was 12 years of age. That's called Bet Midrash. You see, he was learning the skill of, of asking and responding, and they were amazed by his wisdom. 
And the scripture goes on to say that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature before God and before men. I want us to understand that when Jesus appeared on the scene, as we'll see in a moment, he wasn't a surprise. Jesus had a reputation in his community. People were amazed by the wisdom of this young man, this son of Joseph. He grew in wisdom and stature before God and man. People knew about this young man, this, this brilliant uh, uh, academic, you might say, in those school circles. Now, most Jewish girls were married or engaged, as I said, by the age of 13. And that is why Mary, for example, when the angel visits her and says, you're going to conceive of the Holy Spirit and have a son and he'll be the Messiah, the scripture says that when the angel leaves, what does she do? She begins to sing praise to God. We call it the Magnificat, just the worship and praise to God. And in her praise, she is quoting psalms and scriptures from the minor prophets. Why? Because as a young girl in Bethsephor, she would have memorized the Torah. Do you understand? So she's just singing praise to God in Scripture that she has known. That was basically rabbinical education. And different rabbis would have different interpretations or different opinions on the Torah and on the sacred text. Just like we do as pastors, you go through the city, all the pastors essentially preach the same gospel, salvation through Jesus Christ, but we may have different emphasis. We may have different interpretations on things. You may find one person speaks a lot about family. One person speaks about end times. One person has this emphasis, that emphasis. So we all believe the same thing, but we have different interpretations or different biblical themes. What I found interesting is this, is that a rabbi's particular interpretation or his particular bend on theology was called his yoke. Isn't that interesting? And so when a rabbi invited you to follow him, to come and to learn of him, what would you do? You would sit under the rabbi and you would take his yoke upon yourself. What did Jesus say? We know the scripture well. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, they understood in the context of what a yoke was. It was the interpretation of the law by that rabbi, but it also included those 600 and odd rules and regulations we talked about a couple of weeks. Jesus was saying, if you come and follow me, I'm not going to impose all of those rules on you. I'm just going to teach you how to live life freely and lightly in a walk with God. He said, take my yoke, right, upon you and what? Learn from me, because he says, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest in your soul. For my burden is easy, my yoke rather, and my burden is light. I'm not going to weigh you down. Okay, if you were one of the elite students at Bet Midrash, if you were like, I don't know if the same standards nowadays, we typically think of these schools, but if you were kind of a you know, a Yale, Harvard, Ivy League type student, at least what they used to be a generation ago. If you were that kind of student, when you finished Bet Midrash, you would approach a rabbi and you would ask that rabbi, can I become one of your disciples? Would you consider me for one of your Talmud or Talmudin, which means wise student? Because the, the rabbis were looking for disciples who would follow them. If you weren't the top of the class, again, after Bet Midrash, you would simply go home and begin to work as a 14, 15-year-old teenager, which, by the way, back in the Jewish culture, there was no such thing as adolescence. I'll just say it really quickly. Adolescence basically is a post-Second World War creation of a North American opulent culture, which basically says between the age of 14 and 18, you can waste your life. You can game all day. You can do whatever the case may be. There's no responsibilities. That doesn't exist in most cultures. When you move into this age of 13 or so, you're expected to be a young man, a young woman. You're expected to begin to contribute to your family and to your culture and prepare yourself for adulthood. Anyway, there's another lesson in that. But uh, in, in Bet Midrash, if you were the best of the best, you would move on to the next level and become a potential disciple of a rabbi. If the rabbi accepted you, you would enter into your final level of education and of preparation because keep in mind, your goal is to become a rabbi. 
Your goal is to become a teacher, a prominent person in that culture. And you would move into what was called Bet Talmud. Bet Talmud was the longest training in duration. There's different ages in some of these from different resources, but generally agreed that you would be between the ages of 15 and 30 years, that you would be in preparation for those 15 years to become a rabbi. Now, an important thing to understand is that it's at this time, around the age of 15, that most likely all of the disciples, if they had not been sent home before, they would have been sent home by now. We don't have any indication that any of these disciples were invited to go beyond that. In fact, when Jesus finds them, they're doing different things. And so the disciples would have left school by the age of 15. Probably a number of them, if not all of them, maybe even have left by the age of 12 if they weren't the best of the best in that education system. And so um, those who were exceptional enough to be selected to be trained by the rabbi, they would begin this process of grooming and preparation until they too became a rabbi at the age of 30. They would literally imitate everything that the rabbi did. They would eat the food the rabbi ate. They would eat the way the rabbi ate. They would talk just like him. You ever meet people, they, they really admire somebody. After a while, they just begin to sound like them. You know, I mean, when you're a young preacher, you come to college, you tend to gravitate toward, you know, a preacher that you really like. And after a while, you kind of start sounding like that preacher. Well, that's what the rabbis were doing. In fact, they did some things. It's too graphic. I was telling Pastor Kristen, I was doing research on this. Just everything you can possibly imagine, they would copy the rabbi because they wanted to be exactly like the rabbi. Over time, they would even sound like him. They would learn to study the Torah and understand God the exact same way as the rabbi did. And that's why in this whole interviewing process, even when the rabbi invited the disciple to come and kind of try out to be his disciple, why he would be so rigorous with him in the training. Because you see, the rabbi had his own yoke. And what the rabbi wanted to ensure was that his disciples learned his yoke, took his yoke upon them so that his yoke would be perpetuated to the next generation and the next generation. You understand what I'm saying? Because that rabbi himself most likely would have had his own rabbi whom he learned things from, and he was passing that on to his other students. And so the rabbi had to make sure that you had what it took to be his Talmudim that you had what it took to actually take his yoke and to replicate it to your students down the road someday. Now, if the rabbi found that you were worthy to be one of his disciples, he would say these words. I don't think I'm pronouncing them properly, but in the Hebrew, lek hek, lek hek, there you go. Lek hekeri. And that kind of, you know, that's kind of uh, Hebrew with a Spanish accent or something, but... It's in there somewhere. But get this. The words mean this. Come, follow me. That's what the rabbi would say. That's all he would say. Come and follow me. And if you heard those words as a disciple, you left the family, you left the family business, you left your community, and you traveled wherever the rabbi was, and you spent basically every waking moment with him. Now, here's the key. The reason the rabbi would choose you was not only because you were brilliant. He chose you because the rabbi believed that you could be just like him. That's why he invited you, because you would be just like him and pass his yoke on to others. But if after the, after the interview process, the rabbi didn't feel that you had what it took, that you weren't good enough, he would tell you to go back home get married, have babies, and pray that maybe one of your children would be smart enough to become a rabbi. But for you, go back and learn the family business because you're not cut out for it. Now, Jesus followed this model. Jesus lived in this culture, in this context. 
We know, for example, as we said earlier, that Jesus went at the age of 12 to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jesus would have gone through the same educational system. He began his formal ministry as a rabbi at the age of 30. That is why in Jesus' day, time and time again, people referred to him as rabbi, teacher. They weren't calling him a rabbi just because he was an intelligent guy and taught biblical things. They called him a rabbi because he went through the system and he was recognized in his community as the best of the best. And being God who wrote the book, you know, you're bound to kind of know it inside and out. And you probably had some wonderful discussions. So we don't know exactly who his mentor or his rabbi was, but it does record that when Jesus taught the scriptures as a rabbi in that community, that people were absolutely amazed by his insight and authority that they'd never heard before. Okay, here's where we bring it home. In Matthew 4, 18, we read these words, that while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Why were they fishermen? They were fishermen because they were plying their trade. And the reason they were plying their trade was because they weren't good enough to go beyond that in the educational system. That's what they were doing. Jesus said this, Come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Read this last line with me. At once they left their nets and followed him. Have you ever wondered why in the world they left things immediately? Did you ever wonder why this guy comes along, come follow me? Uh, what odds? That's not how it worked. There was something about Jesus that they knew. There was something that they understood in his invitation to come and follow him. Why did they leave everything to follow Jesus without even hesitating? Because they knew that Jesus was a rabbi. And by Jesus saying to these fishermen whom everybody else had rejected, who had sent home, you're not good enough, this, this rabbi comes by and he says to them, come, follow me. And in saying that, what Jesus is saying to them is you're good enough. You're good enough to follow me. And not only are you good enough to follow me, you are good enough to be just like me. And they know who Jesus is. He has the reputation. They've probably hung with him or talked with him in the community or heard about him. And this incredible, elite, brilliant, spiritual rabbi, godly man is coming to us along the seashore who nobody else cares about and says, you're good enough for me. Come and follow me. And you know what? Jesus gets the same reaction from the other ten as well. What's Matthew doing? Collecting taxes. Why? Because he's not smart enough to be a rabbi. You know, what's, what, what are the other guys doing? They're, they're doctoring. They're, they're, they're just different professions when he happens upon them, fishing and banking and things like that. Because they'd all been told that they weren't good enough. But this rabbi says that I can be just like him. In the same passage in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus also calls two brothers, James and John. They're fishing with their father Zebedee, verse 22. And it says this, when Jesus invites them, read it with me. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, I don't know about you, but for years I read that passage. And I wondered why in the world didn't Zebedee say something? You know, they're working in the family business, the three of them. And here's Zebedee and his two boys in the boat. The rabbi says, come and follow me. They drop everything. You know, I kind of picture, you know, I kind of see Zebedee in the, while, the, while the boys are walking away on the beach. I kind of picture Zebedee going, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, why doesn't he chase after them? Why, you know, why? Because Zebedee understands what is happening. He understands that my two boys who are working in the family business, but oh, their mother and I thought they could be so much more. You know, but here they are working, slugging along like we've always done, and this rabbi comes by and asks them to follow him. I can picture Zebedee, when the boys left with Jesus, I can picture Zebedee dropping the nets and running home. And he gets in the front door, and Mrs. Zebedee says, where are the boys? He says, they're not with me today. Why aren't they with you? Did something happen? No. No, they're just, they're just not with me today. You know? Well, give it up. What happened? You won't believe this, honey. 
a rabbi came by. Not just any rabbi. This Jesus that we've heard about, this rabbi, he comes by and he asks the boys to follow him, to be his disciples. I mean, the next day, you know, like a good Jewish father, you know, Zebedee be walking around town with his chest out like this. You know, where are the boys, Zebedee? Well, they're not with me today. They're not fishermen anymore. They left the family business. Oh, what are they doing? Oh, nothing major. They're just studying to be rabbis. That's like saying, how come they're not fishing with you anymore? Oh, I don't know. They got accepted into Harvard School of Business. You know, nothing wrong with fishing. But whatever the trade may be that we default to sometimes, they said, my boys were, were, were believed to be the best of the best by this rabbi. Now, when we think of the disciples, we usually picture them, as you can think of some of the plays that we do and so on. We usually picture them as older men with beards and hairy legs, right? I mean, that's how we see them all the time. The reality was, Peter, who more likely was not only the most outspoken, he was probably the oldest, because in that tradition as well, I understand, they would, a rabbi would typically have an older student who would kind of take care of some of the menial things of the younger ones. And so we know that the disciples kind of looked up to Peter. We also know that Peter was older because he was married. We were told that he had a mother-in-law who was ill, and Jesus healed her. And so he would have been older in that regard. I mean, he could have been 20, 21 years of age or whatever, but he was still older than the other disciples. And also the time when he needed to pay temple tax, didn't have the money, what did Jesus say? Go down the shore, you'll find a fish. There's a coin in the mouth. Go ahead and pay the tax. And, and, and the uh, custom of the day was if you're 20 years of age or older, you begin to pay temple tax. So there's a number of things that we see that Peter was probably the older one, but even being older wasn't that old, probably somewhat in his 20s. We may ask, well, how old were the other disciples? Well, since Jesus is working in the context of his culture, it is not a stretch at all to understand that when Jesus came to the boys uh, to invite them to follow him, they were probably around the same approximate age as other young men who were invited into Bet Midrash, which would have been at the age of about 14, 15 years of age. They might even be a couple years older. But the point is this. Jesus not only calls these young men, who essentially were teenagers, they're like our equivalent of high school students, to change the world. He invites these young men to follow him, these teenagers, but they're not just teenagers. They were teenagers who were rejected by the religious system. They didn't have what it takes. They weren't among the elite. Jesus intended to change the world by the power of the Holy Spirit, being at work in the lives of these young men who essentially were the B team. They weren't even the best of the best. They were just kind of the leftovers and yet Jesus sees something in them and what he can do in them, and he calls them to come follow him. In Matthew 14, we have an example of what it really means to be a disciple. We really see it being lived out in this scripture. It's a story of Jesus walking on the water as the disciples encounter a storm. Look at this verse. It says, when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Now why in the world would Peter ask Jesus to invite him out on the water? It's because if Peter is a disciple of Jesus then Peter should be able to do what the rabbi can do. You see what I'm saying? He understands as a Talmudin, as a Talmud, he understands that if I am following this Jesus, the intention is not just to hang around and see what he says. The intention is to be just like him. And if this Jesus can walk on the water, even though I've never done it and I've never seen anybody do this, but if he can walk on the water and he's my rabbi, that means I should be able to do this too. Incredible insight that Peter has and faith that comes out of this experience. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water. You notice that? He did walk. We don't know exactly how many steps, but anything beyond one step is enough for me. He walked 
on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? What was Peter doubting? Catch this. Peter was not doubting Jesus. Was he? No, why would he? Jesus is standing on the water. There's nothing to doubt. Jesus is doing okay. He's got it all together. He wasn't doubting Jesus. Now, I know it's going to sound a little strange to say, but follow me. I believe what Jesus was referring to was, Peter, why did you doubt yourself? Why did you doubt that you can do what I do? Are you not my disciple? Have I not called you? Jesus was saying, Peter, listen to me. You are my disciple, my Talmud. You can do what I do. In fact, Jesus would say elsewhere, guys, you will do greater things than I have done, more numerous things than I have done, because the goal is for you to be just like me. So Peter, where's your faith? Not just in me. Where's your faith in you? Because you see, my friends, my doubt so often is not in Jesus. Now, maybe I'm being a little vulnerable here this morning. My doubt most times is in me. Most times. The prayer is kind of like, Lord, I don't doubt you. I don't doubt what you can do. I just doubt that I can do it. I just doubt that you can use me. I just doubt that I'm actually good enough. You see, Lord, I've done things. I've messed things up. I've made decisions that land me where I, are, where I am today. I've got a whole bunch of baggage that the enemy can come and pick out at any time and say, this is why you shouldn't expect much. This is why you shouldn't do that. And Jesus says, Peter, don't you understand? I am your rabbi. You are my disciple. Your goal is to be just like me. That's why I picked you. And if I did not know that you could walk on the water, I would not have called you out of the boat. You've got to understand, I'm standing here in all power and all authority, and I'm asking you to walk with me and to reign with me and to rule with me and to believe what I can do in you. You've got to understand that I believe in you. Now, it's by the power of God and the transforming work of the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit, but Jesus believes in you, my friend. He would not call you if he did not love you and be fully convinced that greater things he can do in and through you. He wouldn't call you if he didn't believe that you're not a second-class citizen. You're not a reject. You are the best of the best. Every single one of us are number one sons and daughters of God. Whatever's happened in the past, whoever has written us off, whatever the circumstances may be, whatever regrets we may have, and we find ourselves settling for so little, kind of working along the shore kind of thing. Well, you know, I know God loves me. I know he saved me. But this is really the best I can expect. I don't expect more from God because God knows that I'm not as good as I should be or I've failed in certain things. But even worse, I don't expect much of myself. And so I create this whole theology that accommodates unbelief. Unbelief in who I am as a child of God. Unbelief in who Jesus is and what he really can do through me. Friends, this has profound implications of what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus where I live and where I work and where I go to school. You may not feel like you can make much of a difference where you are. But friends, hear me. Jesus has great faith that if you will step out of the boat... And if you'll keep your eyes on him, he will use you in incredible ways. You will do the things that Jesus has done. You know, Philip was another disciple that Jesus called back in John chapter 1. He actually came from the same community as Peter and Andrew. He came from a small fishing village called Bethsaida, which ran about 600 people. Little, little, little town. Not much expected out of that town. Not much expected from anybody coming out of that town. 600 people. Middle of nowhere. Wouldn't expect anything of it at all. Can you think of a place like that in our geography somewhere? Maybe it's a place you grew up. Just show it a name. Dorchester. Okay, God bless Dorchester. We're not making fun of Dorchester. But she said Dorchester. Okay, so in other words, it's just kind of this remote area. Anybody here from Dorchester? 
Okay. We do have some folks that live there at the time. Okay. But just kind of a place where nobody expects much. Small community. Philip is raised in Dorchester. He leaves Dorchester, becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ, walks with him, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Later on in his ministry, we find Philip in a city called Heropolis. It's in Turkey. Heropolis was essentially the ancient city of Las Vegas. That's really what it was. It was. It was, it was a place that were Roman garrisons, beautiful, majestic buildings, uh, just the architecture, marble everywhere, wonderful, huge, tremendous Roman city. Philip lands there to minister as, as a missionary. He actually has his family with him, church tradition tells us. In Heropolis, the entrance, there's a gate. We have a picture of it for you. It's called Domitian's Gate. In Roman civilization, when cities were built, the, the gates were actually dedicated to different gods. See the picture. Those towers on the right and left side were much, much higher at the time, and that, that, that uh, street goes for a mile and a half in, and there was just buildings everywhere on both sides. Beautiful, beautiful city. It was known as a center for gambling and carousing and all that kind of stuff. They used to have a saying back there, what happens in Heropolis stays in Heropolis. Okay, I found that in an old text. It's true. It was just that kind of city. So here is Philip from Bethsaida, okay? Philip from Dorchester. He goes to Heropolis, and this particular gate was dedicated to the Caesar, the emperor named Domitian. Domitian was one of the first who began to call himself God. His name is over the top of the gate. And when a person walked to the city, they had to go in through that gate. You could go around, but if you go around, you're not acknowledging Domitian, and you could be crucified at the gate. Philip would go to the gate, and he would defy the name of Domitian in the name of the living Lord Jesus Christ, day after day after day. This little nobody from nowhere, and he'd go around. His family, church tradition says, were actually quite terrified, saying, come on, Dad, ease up. You know, you shouldn't be speaking so loudly, whatever the case may be. They were kind of fearful for their lives, too. But Philip is said to have said to them, listen, I walked with Jesus. I saw what Jesus can do. I know that he is the living God. Don't be afraid. He will take care of us. And in fact, Philip and his family, tradition says in the Roman uh, era of that time, that your family would actually be crucified before your own eyes. They crucified his family eventually and crucified him today. Today, rather, there's, there are ruins up on a hill of a, of, a, of a rundown building that is actually called Philip's Martyrium, where it's believed that's where his bones were laid to rest generations and generations ago. But before he did that, this little man Philip, empowered by the Holy Spirit, convinced that he can be like his master, that he can do what his master did. He defied the false gods of the Roman Empire, and over a period of a few years, revival came to Heropolis, and it became a thriving center for the church of Jesus Christ, what used to be Sin City, because this man named Philip understood that to be a disciple of Jesus meant to be like Jesus and meant that I can do what Jesus can do. And the Lord used him. He paid for his life, but he transformed a city by the power of God. You know, today's church culture, and I'm going to ask the worship team to join me. In today's church culture, we are so fixated, so preoccupied with talent and ability. But you know what Jesus really is interested in? He's interested in character. He's interested in people following him, not just with their heads, but people following him, wanting to be like him, and understanding that we can be like him, and we can do what he did. He's looking for people who will integrate their faith into everything they do every day. You see, discipleship is not a class. Discipleship is not a one-hour-a-week kind of thing that we do. At the heart of discipleship is this conviction— that Jesus Christ knows how to live your life better than you do. That's the essence of discipleship. 
The reason that you gravitate, the reason that you would approach a rabbi is because you so admired them, you wanted to be like them, and if they accepted you, it was a privilege to die to everything you knew and every way that you were and basically to relearn how to live life. And Jesus calls us to nothing less than that when we come to him. In fact, Jesus said this. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. But here's the key. Jesus said, I chose you because I know you can be like me. That's why I chose you. You can be my disciple. I want to ask you this morning in closing, what makes you feel like you're not good enough this morning? If you're a Christian here this morning and been serving the Lord for a number of years, let me ask you, what is it that has made you forget that you can actually be the presence of Jesus every day where you are, in your workplace, in your home, wherever it may be. You can be Jesus where you are. But why do we forget that? Why is Christianity so much about what happens when we gather together for so many? Maybe this morning you're here and you have a past. Or maybe you didn't grow up in the church. Or maybe you've made some really bad decisions over your life, just decision after decision, and you always kind of feel like you're on the outside now. Whether you've made mistakes, whether it's been willful sin, whatever it is, but you just kind of feel like, you know, I love the Lord, I believe in the Lord, and I come to church, and I enjoy all of that stuff, but at the end of the day, I don't expect much out of my life, and I don't think God does either. Because the Lord understands. You see, the Lord knows better than I do all the stuff. And so I don't think he expects a whole lot either. And so I've just learned to be content. It's almost like a false spirituality. That I've just learned to content myself with mediocrity. And I leave those other things for other people who are more gifted or more attractive or smart or whatever it may be. I don't expect much of myself. But friends, I want to encourage you to understand this morning. Whatever it is, Jesus simply says to you, come and follow me. And the reason he invites us to follow him is because he believes that we can be like him. You just need to believe that you can be. This almost sounds non-theologically you know, correct to say, but friends, I, I believe it is true that you need to believe that Jesus believes in you. You need to believe that. Now, not apart from him. Without him, forget it, it ain't going to happen. But as you surrender yourself to him and follow him and desire to be like him, what he's working in you is more than enough to do anything through you that he wants to do. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has begun to fathom the things that God has prepared for you to do. If you love him, if you walk with him, if you stop believing the lies of the devil and begin to understand what it really means for Jesus to call you. He calls you because he loves you, but he also calls you because he knows that you can be like him. You can do what he has done. You can do what he's called you to do. You can come out of the shadows and begin to follow the Lord and truly be the best that you can be by the power of the Lord and his love. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's bow our heads. This morning, if you're here and you've never received the Lord's invitation to come follow him. I want to give you that opportunity this morning. Here's where we're going to wrap up our service, just so you know. We're going to pray a prayer. It's a prayer of invitation for the Lord to come into your life. I'm just opening your heart and saying, Jesus, I hear you calling me, and I say, yes, I will come and follow you. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me. I want to be your disciple. I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want to pray for you as well, Christians. If you've just been living in the shadows and accepting mediocrity, I don't know what the Lord has for you, where it is. Nobody may ever know what the Lord knows, and He knows the lives you'll touch, and He'll change through you. But if your heart's desire as well to come out of the shadows and say, Lord, forgive me for misunderstanding what it means to be a disciple. I really can be like you, and I want to be like you. And I want to encourage you to pray as well. We're all going to pray this prayer, and after we do, we're going to dismiss the service, and folks are free to leave. And as they begin to leave, 
I'm going to ask you to come if you prayed this prayer for the first time. We're going to have people coming. I'm going to ask the altar team to come right now if you would. The ministry team is going to be here just facing you. And if you prayed that prayer this morning for the first time to accept Christ into your life, as people are leaving, being dismissed, I'm going to ask you to come. We're not going to keep it more than five minutes. They're just going to introduce themselves, have a word of prayer with you, and just tell you how you can grow in Christ. So would you bow your heads, everyone? We're all going to pray this prayer together before we dismiss this morning. Let's bow our head and pray. Pray after me. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for your love for me. I thank you for what you see in me. And though I see my sin and my failures, I thank you for your forgiveness. I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all wrong and to bring me into a relationship with my Heavenly Father. Be my Savior this morning. Be my Lord. Be my Rabbi. Jesus, I hear your invitation to come and follow you. And right now, I leave all the nets and all the snares and all the things that keep me bound to the past. I let them go. And I'm coming after you because I believe in you and I want you and I want to be just like you. I open my heart to you and I ask you to come in. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning for each person who prayed that prayer for the first time. I pray for strength to step out and to walk away from everything, Lord, that seat represents to come forward and to say, I'm coming to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I come and follow you, Lord. And I pray for your people this morning for a fresh revelation of what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, forgive us for such little faith and for such low living. Help us, Lord, to lay hold of every one of your promises and the awesome privilege that we have to say, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ because I can be just like him by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, let your word remain in our hearts, I pray this morning. Go with us, each one. And I pray, continue to bring us deeper into faith that actually is the presence of Jesus wherever we go through the course of this day in your precious name.